Today's Old Testament lesson comes from Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. That's on page 1060 in your pew Bible. Please stand if you're able. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you would be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves, and they all love bribes and chase gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. The word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. Good morning. It is such a joy to be with you today. I am uh, Pastor Brian Durand and uh, have been at Clay United Methodist Church for 10 years. Um, It has been a joy to serve uh, alongside Pastor Michelle in ministry. I know lots of times some of the things that happen behind the scenes, not everybody on Sunday morning sees, but Pastor Michelle and Pastor Vicki Van Neville and I have been meeting together and talking about ministry in South Bend and, and joining together in, in joint ministry efforts, joint witness. It's been such a, such a, a joy. Uh, it's a joy being here with you today. I always, uh, always start by saying being a guest preacher in a church, it is win-win. So if I am terrible, then you are thrilled when Pastor Michelle comes back. And if I am fantastic, then you are thankful that Pastor Michelle invited me. So it's all, all good for me. We, Pastor Michelle and Pastor Vicki and I, were talking about relationships and what it meant to be the United Methodist Church and what it meant to be united. And we are doing this uh, pulpit exchange between uh, Evangel Heights and, uh, and Clay United Methodist and First United Methodist. And starting this year, to think about what does it look like to be united. In the John's Gospel, toward the end of John's Gospel, uh, Jesus prays. You maybe have read those prayers, and, and, and some of you may know them, but, but he prays just before he's going to be arrested and, and crucified. And in that prayer, I think it's the most amazing thing. He prays for, um, he prays for the disciples, but then he prays for you and me. Have you ever thought about that? At the end of the gospel, Jesus prays for us. Specifically, he prays for all those who will come to know the love of Jesus because of the disciples. That's us. And his prayer for us is a prayer for unity, that they may be one as the Father and I are one. And not just so that we can all get along and that things will be like hunky-dory. Sorry, that's an 80s word reference. But Not just so we can all get along and and things will be hunky-dory, but so that it's a specific prayer that we may be one so that others will come to know the love of God too. We'll be united so that we can witness. So what does it look like 
to be united in this world that can be so divisive. We're in an election year where we know how divisive it's going to be. Let's start in the Bible and talk about what unites us, what brings us together as followers of Jesus. Let's pray, and then today we're going to talk about one of the specific things that I think unites us, and that is this idea of justice. Would you pray with me? Holy God, open our ears to hear from your word what you would have to say to us this day. Open our minds to learn and and grow and better understand and open our hearts to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ that we may be on fire with that love to share it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're gonna uh, learn a Hebrew word today. The Hebrew word is mishpat. Can you say mishpat? mishpat? Very good. Mishpat is a Hebrew word that is usually translated in our Bible as justice. In fact, it appears more than 400 times in the Old Testament, which gives us an idea. This is something we ought to know about. It's something that is important. The root of this word is about judgment. Now, it's interesting because when we think of judgment, what do we think of? Like, we usually think of punishment, When we think of judgment, quite often we think in the negative, punishment for wrongdoing, righting the wrong by by punishing or or resetting. And that is certainly, Mishpat has some of that, but, but what we often don't think about when we think about judgment is the positive side of judgment. In fact, I would argue that that while God's judgment doesn't sound comfortable, we probably want God's judgment because God's judgment is about everybody getting what they are due, which is about everybody being provided for and loved and experiencing the goodness of God. People getting what they are due means people getting provision and care. It's the positive side of of judgment. This is justice, mishpat, the idea that everybody gets what they are due. Everybody is provided for. Everybody has enough. We heard two scriptures today, and we're going to unpack both a little bit. First, uh, from Isaiah. Isaiah was written during the the reign of four kings of Judah, 750 to 700 BC, somewhere in there. And and what's important is the context. It helps us understand what Isaiah is saying. Judah at that point is under the threat of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire has grown, and and Judah, while it's, it's not necessarily particularly rich in resources, it stands at an incredibly important crossroads to Egypt, which is rich. And as the Assyrian Empire is looking to expand its influence, it expands, and in this time frame, it invades and conquers Israel, the north part of the people of God, the northern kingdom of the people of God. And it asks Judah to pay tribute or face the same fate. And for a while, Judah does, but then they begin to think that they can stand up. And Isaiah is speaking in this time period to the rulers and the the leading people of Judah. And he has a tough, he has a tough message for them. He says to them, your worship is meaningless to me. Your worship is meaningless to me. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you like to come to worship and be comfortable? 
right? I mean, we, we want to come and, and worship God and, and hear about God's love and God's grace, and we want to be comfortable. I, I'm with you, right? I, I mean, and there absolutely is that aspect of, of worship. But Isaiah invites us to ask this question, should we be comfortable while others are in pain? Should we be comfortable while others are starving and dying and hurting? God desires mishpat. God desires justice for all. Provision for everyone. And so Isaiah gives this warning. He says to the people, without justice, without caring for each other, your society is going to fall. And this, this isn't a new thought. This goes all the way back to, to the Greek philosophers, this idea that without justice, without equality, without provision for everyone, a community can't stand together against the challenges that it faces. Isaiah says, your worship is meaningless to me as long as there are people who are starving and orphans in your streets and people who are hurting And if you don't care for those people, your community, your country will be so weak that it cannot withstand the threats to it. And he's right. It comes true, right? Eventually, not to Assyria, but as Judah continues to not follow this call to be the kingdom of God, it too will fall eventually to Babylon. Justice. Right, the importance of justice. Is this not something that, that we can agree on across, across divides? We say it in our pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, right? One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It's a scriptural foundation of who we're called to be even as people of this country. And as we say that, we might just pause and think, right, Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, is it not true that we can all agree on this? No one should die of hunger. No one should not have a roof over their heads, particularly in weather like today. No one should go without an education. Thank you to our children and children's moment today. No one should go without an education. Perhaps one starting place for unity for us can be this call, God's call for justice. What do I require of you? We find in the the prophet Micah, to do justice. Love kindness, walk humbly with God. There it is again, justice. And it isn't just a, it isn't just a, a theoretical concept. Do justice. Micah's call is to do something about justice in the community. We are united as people of God in pursuing God's call to create a just and Christ-like community. Now, We should pause, though, and go, we don't all agree on what that justice looks like. So what is this concept of justice that unites us? And I think think Jesus' story in Matthew's gospel today is insightful. 
right? He tells this story, and it, he, uh, he says, the kingdom of heaven, he's describing the kingdom as like a landowner. And this landowner goes and he hires some people and they come to, they come to work and then he agrees to pay him one denarius and then he goes out and he brings some more workers in and he brings some more workers in. At the end of the day, it's time to pay everybody. And he pays the workers who had just arrived to work just, you know, maybe half hour, an hour, he pays them a denarius. And then he pays the workers who'd been there half a day a denarius. And the workers who, the workers who'd been there all day are like, this is not fair. How many of you are with them? Like, the first time I read this story in the gospel, I'm like, yeah, it's not fair. They've been working all day, right? Fair would be that everybody gets the same hourly pay. Like, that's what would be in our heads about what justice looks like. But, but notice that that's justice from our vantage point. That is what justice looks like from the vantage point of the worker who started the day. So here's some things we might take from this scripture. Justice isn't about me. Justice is about us. Justice isn't about some of us. Justice is about all of us. And justice isn't defined from our perspective or one group's perspective. Justice comes from God's perspective. You see, if if we argue, which is probably what Jesus is counting on, if we argue with the idea that everybody should be paid equally for the hours, what we miss is the generosity of the landowner who went to find those workers that nobody else hired, those workers who were going to starve because nobody else was providing for them, and brought them in and said, I want you to make sure you have enough as well. I sometimes use this concept with kiddos, um, right? If I brought three people up here and, uh, um, and, and had $30 to give out and gave $10 to each of them, we would typically say, right, that's, that's fair, that's, that's just. But the reality is that if, if one of them has no way to feed themselves for the week, then wouldn't justice or fairness actually look like giving $30 to the person who has no food? Justice is enough that we can all eat for the week. Justice is that we all have a sense that we are valued and loved. Justice is everyone knowing the generosity of the one who created us. We heard in the children's message about empathy. One of the things about empathy is if we feel it, if we truly experience it, it can make us uncomfortable. Are you willing to be uncomfortable with me for a moment? You don't actually have a chance to say no to that. (laughs) I've had the opportunity over the last several months to work directly with families in our community. I I have an opportunity in, in many ways in pastoral ministry to work with people, but but in this case I've been sort of immediately involved as opposed to sort of coordinating with others to care for two families. One of those is a, is a family that moved here from Chicago, was living right at the poverty line, and then they had an incredible tragedy in their lives. They lost a child. And, uh, and we were invited to, to step in to, to pastoral ministry with them. I was invited to step in, and um, actually Pastor Michelle has been involved in that ministry. It's been It's been so hard and such a gift to be there for them. One of the things, when they moved here from Chicago, 
In Chicago, they had public transportation, so they could work. They both have jobs. They could both work, and they didn't need a car. When they got here, they needed a car, and so they went out, and they found a car. Well, they're living right at the poverty line. This tragedy set them back, and so they've been struggling just to make it. And I was sitting down with them. We were going through finances, and they were behind on their car payments, and so we called the, the loan um, company for this. They had bought a car, um, that turned out to be a lemon. It had no heat. It had catalytic converter problems. It had electrical problems that they'd had in twice for service. They bought a car that was a lemon. And I asked them their car payment. I'm like, that can't be right. That's more than my car payment. And I ended up getting a newer car. And, uh, and no, it was correct. Their loan was at a 26% rate. 26%. Just to give you a, a quick glimpse, my loan over the course of, uh, of, uh, of five years, I'll have to pay about $2,500 in interest. Their loan was going to cost them $11,000 over the same span in interest payments. Now, from the person who's giving them the loan, and it's a risk, right? We might say, well, we've got to charge that much to, so that it's you know, fair to the business. But what does justice look like? This is the system that, that we live in. I've also been working with a, a refugee family and been talking about housing and we're trying to get them to a point where they can, they can buy, their own, buy their own home and we're having this conversation with them and, and uh, um, one of the suggestions was maybe, maybe one of them could work one more job, um, particularly the uh, the dad could work one more job, and he's a hard worker. He's got two jobs already. It's like, well, maybe he could add a, add a third job just to get to the point that they needed. And we were looking at, looking at their financial situation. If he gets a third job, then he passes over the Medicaid threshold. And if they lose their Medicaid, the health insurance, and we looked at health insurance plans for a family of four, the health insurance would absolutely cripple them in terms of finances. So he can't make more with just another job to try and get the money that they need to try and secure the kind of housing that would be a long-term benefit for them. It's just the way the system is, works in our world today. I think the reality is even I as a pastor live so unaware of those challenges, of those structures of injustice in our world. And I think Isaiah, I think the prophet today, I think even in particularly Jesus, they just invites us to wake up and see. To wake up and see. When you see Mishpat in the Bible, it is almost always linked to the poor and the blind and the lame, and the orphan, and the widow. It's almost always linked to those who couldn't make it, who couldn't support themselves. If we go back to Isaiah, it says, Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Justice looks like needs met, people provided for, people loved. It's part of the reason that I love the joint ministries of our churches. Like, I know um, uh, First and, and Clay and, and Evangel Heights are all involved in some way in Broadway Christian Parish. We're talking about more ways. How do we stand for justice in our community? How do we help provide for those 
who don't feel valued or loved? And a tougher question if we're willing to feel uncomfortable. Are we ready to at least pay attention to the systems that create the struggles in our world? I want to close with sort of two quick stories. One, one is about sort of one of my heroes of the faith is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay, good, a decent number of people have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a pastor uh, who was a Lutheran pastor in Germany. And when, the, uh, when Hitler rose to power, um, Bonhoeffer actually had friends that brought him to America um, so that he could escape what was happening in Germany at the time. And so he came to America and he taught for a short time. But then when things continued to get worse, he came to the realization that he could not, he could not be part of the healing, part of the kingdom of God work if he didn't go back to serve alongside those in the church who were essentially opposing Hitler. And so he went back. As it turns out, he became part of a... Of, History is a little bit murky here, but part of a plot to assassinate Hitler, or at least he was part of a, he was associated with people who were part of this plot. He ended up in prison and was killed. He stood for justice in a mighty way. He gave his life for justice, particularly for the, for the Jewish people. While he was in prison, he wrote extensively, and um, I want to read two things that he wrote um, in a in a collection of letters from prison. The first is this. We are not, by we, he means the church, we are not simply to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. The second thing he wrote is this. Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they are doing now. And then he'd go on to write, we must finally stop appealing to theology to justify our reserved silence about what the state is doing, for that is nothing but fear. Open your mouth for the one who is voiceless. For who in the church today still remembers that that is the least of the Bible's demands in times such as these? And then a story... Anthony Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, some of you uh, know both Supreme Court justices, they actually served first on the United States Court of Appeals in D.C., and they became friends. Now, if you don't know them, you couldn't be further apart on the political spectrum, I don't believe, than the two of them. Uh, but they shared a love of great food, a love of opera. In fact, they had opera season tickets together. Scalia once remarked of Ginsburg, what's not to like except her views of the law, of course. Judge uh, Jeffrey Sutton served as a, 
um, law clerk to Scalia. Sutton's actually now on the U.S. Court of Appeals himself. And he recalled a visit one day to Anthony Scalia's chambers, and he walked in, and on, on Scalia's desk were two dozen roses. And Sutton said, like, why did somebody give you roses? And Scalia said, oh, you don't misunderstand. They're not for me. I, I need to deliver them to, to Ruth. And Sutton said to Scalia at that point, some version of this, what good have all these roses done you? Name one case of any significance where you got Justice Ginsburg's vote. And Scalia replied, some things are more important than votes. Some things are more important than votes. Justice, God's justice, I think is more important than votes that people are fed and provided for and feel loved and have opportunities is more important than simply votes. That's why the United Methodist Church, part of what unites us is our social justice commitments. We have a long history of advocating for social justice. During their time in university, John and Charles Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, like part of that movement was going and visiting those in prison, making sure they were cared for. Part of it was tutoring kids who needed help to catch up. Wesley was opposed to the abuse of animals and, and, and opposed to slavery. He wrote in opposition to slavery at the time. The early Methodists continued that call, they, they stood up with their opposition about societal ills and, and slavery and smuggling and inhumane prison conditions and alcohol abuse and, and child labor. I had an opportunity to visit the uh, uh, Ellis Island a few years ago. And I don't know how many of you have been to Ellis Island, but there's a whole display there about United Methodist women. Um, and the Methodist Women's Society at that point in time it didn't matter whether people were coming in or whether they'd be deported. They cared for all of them. They had programs where they, where they brought things, particularly for the women who were coming, trying to, trying to get caught up with their husbands who were already here, and they met them, and they cared for their needs. As we're united in this call to justice, the, the question I think we get to ask ourselves, will we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable? As long as injustice continues, will we allow ourselves to be empathetic? Will we hold united to God's justice, this call to create a just and Christ-like community? Will we offer God's generosity? Amen. Amen.